Episode 6, The Undetermined Target. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm John O'Connor, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, covered up Watergate, and began today's partisan advocacy journalism. One of the biggest mysteries of Watergate burglaries has been its true purpose, about which there has been rampant and generally incredible speculation. As we noted earlier, in June 1972, it appeared that the Democrats would nominate South Dakota Senator George McGovern as their presidential candidate. McGovern was considered a very weak opponent for Nixon, and his nomination, which was now expected, augured an easy win for the incumbent president. Nixon's stronger opponent would have been Maine Senator Edmund Muskie, but Muskie, once favored for nomination, melted down during the primaries, most famously by crying publicly about vicious press stories concerning his wife's drinking habits. He never recovered, and McGovern soon overtook him. As a side note, we mentioned that the stories about Muskie's wife may have emanated from White House sources. So, with this weak candidate on the horizon, what caused a seemingly desperate, unnecessary burglary of an unpromising source, the DNC? As of June 17, 1972, the DNC would have possession of no campaign strategies because no candidate had yet been nominated. If Nixon's campaign wanted campaign strategies of McGovern, it should, logically, have burgled the McGovern campaign headquarters, not the DNC. For almost 50 years, various theories have been bruited about, none greatly convincing, suggesting an election campaign motive for the strategy. Throughout the summer of 1972, commentators were grappling with what seemed to be, in the words of White House Press Secretary Ronald Ziegler, a senseless, third-rate burglary, seemingly bungled badly. Even FBI agents quoted by the aggressive Washington Post on September 9, 1972, seemed to be scratching their investigative heads. And I quote, FBI agents were not able to learn positively the exact objectives of the Watergate break-in, unquote. The puzzlement by FBI agents likely resulted from the tap's placement on the phone of the unimportant Spencer Oliver Jr., the wiretap monitor had told the FBI he was listening to many, quote, explicitly intimate, unquote, conversations between men and women. Some public attention was focused on this question beginning September 1972, when on September 7, the DNC held a press conference focused on revelations of a heretofore unknown witness, a, quote, participant, unquote, who is named later as Alfred Baldwin III, the wiretap monitor. For over two weeks prior to the arrest, Baldwin had been listening to conversations from a wiretap installed during the first burglary. In that press conference of September 7, 1972, DNC Director Larry O'Brien surmised that Republicans wanted to listen to his conversations since he, quote, had conversations with perhaps every prominent Democrat in America, including every candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination, unquote. O'Brien, the article noted, was the national campaign director for the McGovern presidential bid. We note here parenthetically that such a title was largely ceremonial. O'Brien at the time would have had virtually no information about McGovern's strategies. In any case, the suggestion in the Post article was that the Nixon White House was seeking to tap O'Brien's phone to gain access to these intimate conversations with influential Democrats. 
While some held the view at that time, and others may still hold it, there are serious problems with this analysis. As we noted, the title as campaign chairman was largely an overblown ceremonial title, and O'Brien would have had little information, especially at this stage of the campaign prior to the presidential nomination. More to the point, O'Brien had not been in D.C. for some weeks as of the time of the burglary and would not return for several more well after the Democratic convention in July. We also note that the burglars were seeking a large cache of documents, as shown by the many rolls of film and camera equipment seized at the time of the burglary arrests, suggesting that documents were more important than conversations. This has given rise to a number of theories, some aided by the involvement of the anti-Castro Cubans. The burglars, it was speculated, were looking for, quote, fidelista, unquote, campaign contributions, donations either from Castro's regime or from those who were supporters of Castro, all of which would sully the Democrats. But there was never any evidence of this, and at best, uh, this has always been a cover story used to explain the presence of anti-Castro Cuban patriots on the burglary team. One theory that has taken hold over the years, to which many still subscribe, involves evidence that Howard Hughes had given Nixon $100,000 in cash prior to the election. Larry O'Brien, we have noted, had previously represented Hughes, and Nixon always thought it was O'Brien behind the outing in 1960 during his campaign against John Kennedy that Hughes had loaned $205,000 to Nixon's brother, Donald Nixon, which appeared to be a disguised payment to Nixon himself. Perhaps, it was speculated, Nixon was now looking to see what evidence O'Brien had on him in 1972. This theory would be based on speculation that Nixon was worried about the latest Hughes cash infusion, which would be supposedly leaked through O'Brien and again damage Nixon's chances. But even though this speculation is still being offered, the many hours of White House tapes released to the public contain no evidence that this was Nixon's worry, or that the worry was transmitted to John Mitchell or any of the team that entered Watergate on either the first or second burglaries. If that were the purpose, Liddy would have known it, and the burglars would have taken action directed at it. At the time of the arrest, some camera clamps had been placed on a desktop, and two drawers were open but it was not reported where the drawers were or on what desk the camera clamps had been placed or what information may have been contained in that part of the office. Nor was it reported in what part of the office this activity occurred. So this lack of clue as to the target allowed great leeway for speculation about the purpose of the burglary, virtually all of it tied to some inferred motive of Nixon. So what light can we now shed on the purpose of the burglary? We believe that piecing together the evidence, the target can now be clearly shown and another of the many mysteries of Watergate solved. The wiretap monitor Alfred Baldwin III was an ex-FBI agent hired by James McCord, security director of the CRP, to perform certain security operations. He was not hired until May 1st. His first duty was chaperoning the unruly, hard-drinking Martha Mitchell, wife of Attorney General John Mitchell, on campaign trips. He was then assigned to monitor overheard conversations on the Watergate wiretaps and make notes of the conversations for transmission to McCord. Our first clue about the wiretapping target comes from Baldwin's FBI statement when he related his initial overhearings. As he first visited on May 24, 1972, the monitoring station, room 419 in the Howard Johnson Hotel, no wiretaps had yet been installed. By the time they were installed, 
McCourt had already changed rooms for a better position from which to monitor the sixth floor of the Watergate office building. That was across the street from the monitoring station. So he moved the monitoring station to room 723. In short, no wiretaps had been in place when Baldwin stayed in room 419. However, while in room 419, McCord gave a headset to Baldwin, who then listened to, quote, a man discussing his marital problem, unquote, with a woman. Seemingly a wiretap conversations, but one prior to any tap installed by the burglars. The respected Jim Hogan, author of Secret Agenda, suggests that this shows that there were already bugs in place at a nearby bordello, but not yet placed in the DNC, and that McCord had picked up this wiretap signal, presumably the CIA's monitoring of the escort service. Putting aside for the moment Hogan's theory, the, quote, marital problem, unquote, discussion offers a window through which to analyze the true target of the subsequent wiretaps. In his original 302 statement to the FBI, Baldwin told the FBI that during the two weeks of his monitoring the first tap, he had listened to a number of, quote, explicitly intimate, unquote, conversations. After Baldwin gave his first press interview to the Los Angeles Times in late September 1972, the subsequently published story was written to emphasize Baldwin's supposed instruction from McCord to listen for, quote, hot political gossip, unquote. The Los Angeles Times and the Post both followed up with the story of Baldwin on one occasion delivering logs to the CRP with the suggestion that he had been delivering the logs to one of the three named Republican officials, Robert Odell or Glenn Sedan of the CRP or William Timmons of the White House. Of course, this would make the wiretapping look like it was performed for political purposes. In their book, All the President's Men, however, Woodward and Bernstein admit that they made a mistake in naming these officials as possible recipients. But the time of this October 6, 1972 article, the story helped immeasurably to cast the overhearings as targeting political gossip. We note here parenthetically that the protocol in place was to transmit wiretap logs from Baldwin to McCord. McCord would then type them up, give them to Liddy, who would then refashion them again into a more professional-looking report for subsequent delivery to CRP Deputy Director Jeb Magruder. According to Liddy, he made two deliveries of wiretap logs to Magruder, one on June 8, 1972, and one on June 15, 1972. Uh, And that was right before, of course, the second burglary. According to Baldwin's testimony, he made his own delivery to the CRP based on instruction by McCord when McCord was out of town, which occurred June 6 through June 8. So it would have made no sense for McCord to have logs delivered someplace by Baldwin unless the delivery was outside the proscribed procedure. It certainly made no sense that the delivery would be made at the same time Liddy was presenting the same materials to Magruder. Unless, of course, There was something in the materials McCord asked Baldwin to deliver that were not meant for the White House. Before we move on from this subject, at some point Baldwin told investigators that the person to whom he delivered the logs may have had, quote, two last names, unquote. We will leave that matter now, but do note that McCord's part-time contractor, who we will discuss later, was named Lewis Russell and he sometimes worked as a security guard for the CRP. Since Baldwin delivered the envelope to a security guard at the CRP, the addressee may well have been Lewis Russell, but more about Russell later. But even given the White House connections of both Liddy and Hunt, the post story on Baldwin's looking for, quote, hot political gossip, unquote, 
and given that the target of the burglar was the DNC, the natural speculation was that the Nixon administration wished to wiretap the Democrats to obtain a campaign strategy. This speculation, however, today, years after extensive study, still lacks basis in fact. Perhaps the most important revelation about the true target comes from Anthony Lucas, a respected New York Times reporter who wrote the highly praised 1976 book Nightmare. Collecting fragments of anecdotal evidence, Lucas suggests a possible stunning motive for the burglary. Let me quote directly from Lucas's book, and I will then also quote within the quote. So when I have Use quotation marks, it means that quote is embodied in what I am quoting from Lucas's book. And I quote, Several secretaries used Oliver's phone because they thought it was the most private one in the office. They would say, quote, We can talk. I'm on Spencer Oliver's phone, unquote. Some of the conversations Baldwin recalls were, quote, explicitly intimate, unquote. Ehrlichman, after debriefing Magruder in the wake of the arrests, reported, quote, what they were getting was mostly this fellow Oliver phoning his girlfriends all over the country, lining up assignations, unquote. So spicy were some of the conversations on the phone that they have given rise to unconfirmed reports that the telephone was used for some sort of call girl service catering to congressmen and other prominent Washingtonians. And that's the end of the Lucas quote. Later in 1984, an impressive revisionist work, Secret Agenda, in that book, author Jim Hogan presents his case that the overhearings were aimed at intimate talk coming from an escort service close to the DNC headquarters on Virginia Avenue, run by what Hogan described as a, quote, lush blonde, unquote, who he calls by the assumed name of Tess. The targets, Hogan concludes, were this service and its conversations with DNC bigwigs. Now, to be sure, Hogan adds a wrinkle that gives us pause. He suggests that the CIA was already electronically eavesdropping on the escort service and only pretended to do so with a tap on the DNC line. However, contrary to Hogan, we know that Oliver's phone was in fact tapped, but do give the impressive Hogan one of his points, that the CIA may have independently been monitoring the bordello, as shown by Baldwin's overhearings on the headphones from room 419, before taps were even put in place by the burglary team. So Hogan's theory makes a degree of sense because Baldwin, you will recall, first listened to intimate talk when in room 419, days before the DNC burglary. In our view, both of these narratives can be true. An already existing tap on the escort service does not preclude a subsequent tap of the DNC offices, specifically of Oliver's phone. The purpose of the DNC tap, under our theory, would be to legitimate the entire CIA monitoring operation, since the DNC tap would have been ostensibly authorized by presidential approval, even if the others were not. In any event, we do have solid evidence, Hogan's theory notwithstanding, of a tap at the DNC, because some overheard conversations did not involve women, but in fact were purely political, albeit unimportant, calls. For example, a hapless Republican Harry Fleming was overheard talking with Spencer Oliver Jr., whose line was clearly tapped. We hasten to agree with Hogan that a bordello line was likely already bugged by the CIA. Hogan, former Washington Bureau editor-in-chief of Harper's Magazine, was very knowledgeable about the world of spies and indeed had written an insight of account of it in his earlier book, Spooks. 
But as brilliant as Secret Agenda is, he tells us little about what might interest the White House in this talk. A great leap forward came from the 1991 bestseller Silent Coup by Len Kolodny and Robert Gitlin, to whom we will refer here as Kolodny. Kolodny named the Madam of the Escort Service as one Kathy Dieter, which he claimed was a nom de guerre for one Heidi Reichen. A beautiful blonde of German birth, Reichen had been previously driven from D.C. because of heat from the vice squab, uh, stemming from her activities at a strip club called the Blue Mirror. Kolodny claimed that a lawyer for Heidi slash Kathy, Philip Bailey, had arranged a referral system with his contact at the DNC. Kolodny logically concludes that the conversations between the visiting DNC Democrats and the call girls was the target of the wiretapping, using the phone system of Spencer Oliver Jr. as overseen by his secretary, Ida Maxi Wells. Oliver had empty offices and was often traveling, and Wells was in charge of entertaining visitors. Kolodny summarizes the evidence of the sexual activities uh, targeted. I will now quote from page 138-139 of Kolodny's Silent Coup, and this is Kolodny's summary of the evidence he had gained as to what Baldwin was listening to, and I quote, In a recent conversation with us, Howard Hunt said that the bugging target was not Wells or Oliver. Quote, they just happened to be on the same phone call, that's all, unquote. For corroboration that the phone was tapped in this area and that the overheard conversations pertain to Heidi slash Kathy's call girl operation, we have to leap ahead in time. The evidence establishes that in the period just after the burglars had been caught and identified and their criminal trial was imminent, the government's lead prosecutor, Assistant U.S. Attorney Earl J. Silbert, believed that the fruits of the Watergate break-in were embarrassing tapes of a sexual nature. Silbert believed that Hunt had intended to use the telephone conversations that Baldwin had overheard for purposes of blackmail. The evidence includes the fact that Baldwin characterized the conversations overheard as, quote, explicitly intimate, unquote. In addition, federal prosecutors have confirmed that the telephone tapped conversations were, quote, primarily sexual, unquote, and, quote, extremely personal, intimate, and potentially embarrassing, unquote. And that ends our particular quote from this section of Kolodny. According to Kolodny, at least the second burglary was ordered by Dean to find out the dirt the Democrats may have had on the Republicans, presumably of a sexual nature. Like many offended victims of unfavorable press, Dean chose to sue Kolodny and his publisher for the work. We know nothing other than that the publisher settled with Dean and his wife Maureen in some undisclosed manner, while Kolodny claims to have agreed to dismissal only with the payment to him of an undisclosed sum from an insurer, and Dean's promise not to sue Kolodny in the future. So the winner of the legal battle is unclear, and none of Silent Coup has been expurgated or retracted. While the merits of any confidentially settled suit are difficult to judge, it appears that Dean's claim may have been motivated by what he thought an unwarranted smear of his wife Maureen, and that, apart from this quibble, the essential truth of silent coup has not been discredited. But, as many defamation plaintiffs find, such litigation can often produce information far more harmful than the previously publicized work of which they're complaining. In Dean's case, Prominent Democrat and DNC official Robert Strauss testified in his deposition, and I will now quote from the 1996 libel case deposition of the DNC's Robert Strauss, quote, 
Some of the state chairmen who would come to Oliver's office and use the phone to make dates, in connection with the use of the telephones, some of the calls could have been embarrassing to some of the people who made them, unquote. Gordon Liddy, after reading Silent Coup, changed his tune about the purpose of the burglaries, about which he had previously been in the dark, and now claimed that the burglaries were about looking for sexual dirt the Democrats may have had on the Republicans. After this, Oliver and Wells sued Liddy, using Dean's lawyers from the previous litigation. Stalwart Fox News reporter James Rosen testified in that trial about his revealing interview with DNC Treasurer Strauss, a very highly placed Democratic official who we just quoted. So here is what Rosen said Strauss told him, and I quote, Democrats in from out of town for a night would want to be entertained. Quote, it wasn't any organized thing, but I could have made the call. That lady could have made the call, unquote. The reference was to Maxie Wells, quote, and these people were willing to pay for sex, unquote. Those were his exact words, unquote. Jim Hogan, who followed this litigation, later summarized Baldwin's testimony in the defamation litigation about what he overheard. Let me now quote from Hogan, quote, Baldwin was even more specific in a deposition that he later gave. According to the former FBI agent, many of the telephone conversations involved dinner arrangement with, quote, sex to follow, unquote. And while he never heard, quote, prices, unquote, being discussed, Baldwin testified, he guessed that, quote, eight out of ten, unquote, people would have thought the calls involved prostitution. But he himself did not. As a former FBI agent, Baldwin knew that for prostitution to occur, there has to be a promise of money. But money was never discussed, he said, or at least not in his hearing. Unfortunately for Wells and Oliver, the Baltimore jury thought the story of the prostitution referral operation was quite credible. Even though the standard of proof in a civil trial, such as this defamation case, is usually a preponderance of the evidence test, that is, if the plaintiff's evidence even slightly outweighs the defense, plaintiff has proven his case, the jury still voted 7-2 to that Wells and Oliver had not met even this light burden. After an appeal and retrial, the second jury voted nine to nothing against Wells and Oliver. So while the Dean case was settled and not tested in court, the same silent coup allegations were put to the proof in Wells v. Liddy, with disastrous results to those asserting the, quote, political strategy, unquote, narrative of Watergate. In light of these lawsuits, how do we sum up the evidence? There are simply too many solid facts showing that the subject of overhearings was tawdry conversation between out-of-town Democrats and the girls working for an escort service down the street. Since the only working tap was on the line of a minor Democrat, Spencer Oliver Jr., who traveled often and had no central campaign duties, it is near impossible to prove the political motive posited by decades of speculation from pro-post acolytes and other anti-Nixonites. So we can conclude with great confidence that the motive for the wiretapping was not campaign intelligence and was likely directed toward sexual conversations. But the question still remains, why would the White House care about these tawdry conversations? And why would the CIA? If Liddy was a dupe as to Watergate's real purpose, as he now claims, is there solid proof of the claimed motivation to capture such tawdry talk? Was any Nixon official cognizant of the call girl target if Liddy was not? And to our own purposes here, why would this call girl targeting stay hidden for all these years? Wouldn't the prosecution put the call girl evidence into the public sphere? 
And if the CIA was involved, wouldn't the FBI and prosecutors learn that and prove it in court? And to the big question, even if all of the so-called revisionist evidence is true, didn't Richard Nixon still obstruct justice? If so, why shouldn't he have deserved removal from office? Answering these questions gets us even further down the rabbit hole known as Watergate, where we hope to show you even more evidence solving its unsolved mysteries. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on the same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.